Hello, you're listening to the Science of Everything podcast, episode 117, Intracellular Protein Sorting. I'm your host, James Fodor. So this episode continues on from the previous episode, 116, the cell membrane, and here we're talking about the cell membrane in the intracellular context. So specifically, that means we're going to be looking at the endomembrane system, the system of membranes inside the cell, and particularly we're going to be looking at how proteins are sorted and sent to different parts of the endomembrane system and different organelles within the cell and also uh, sent outside of the cell. So we're going to be talking about nuclear transport, transport to mitochondria and chloroplasts, as well as organelles such as the endoplasmic reticulum, the Golgi apparatus, and how transports vesicles work, uh, moving proteins around different parts of the cell. Recommended pre-listening is, unsurprisingly, the previous episode, 116 on the cell membrane. And without further ado then, let's get started and start talking about the endomembrane system. So the endomembrane system is composed of different membranes that are suspended in the cytoplasm within a eukaryotic cell. So remember that we've got a double lipid membrane surrounding you know, the entire outside of the cell, and that's called the plasma membrane. But the plasma membrane is not just sort of outside the cell, it's also inside the cell. Basically, the plasma membrane has bits that are dispersed throughout the interior of the cell, and that's called the endomembrane system. I mean, it's, it's separate from the plasma membrane, but it's topologically continuous with it, and we'll explain what that means in a moment. So it's sort of the same, but different, if, if you see what I mean. Now, these internal membrane, or this internal membrane system, gives rise to a number of organelles within the eukaryotic cell. And we, we've talked about these in, in a previous episode, but just to go through them again. So there's the nucleus, where the DNA is, and that's where you know genes are transcribed and so forth. There's the endoplasmic reticulum, which surrounds the nucleus. The Golgi apparatus, which is sort of... Uh, a stack of membranes, kind of like a stack of pancakes on the side, if you like, uh, which are functionally related to the endoplasmic reticulum, but also distinct. Then there are lysosomes, vesicles, and endosomes, which are basically like little spheres or oblong membrane shapes that have different digestive and storage roles. And then, of course, there's the plasma membrane itself. In addition to that, there's also the mitochondria, which are the energy factories, and the um, chloroplasts, which are the photosynthesizing organelles in plants, certain other organisms as well. Now, what the endomembrane system has in common is a what I mentioned before, a topological relationship with the outside of the cell. So the way it works is that there are these membrane structures that are enclosed in different parts of the cell, and this includes the rough endoplasmic reticulum, the smooth endoplasmic reticulum, the Golgi apparatus, lysosomes, and vesicles. And all of these enclosed areas are, in a sense, outside the cell, or as the saying goes, it's topologically equivalent to being outside the cell. So basically, the cell has these sort of enclosed areas that are outside the cell. And the sense in which they're outside is that basically, in order to go from being, say, in a lysosome or being in the Golgi apparatus to being outside the cell, you don't have to actually cross any cell membrane. All you have to do is butt off in a vesicle, which is just like an enclosed sort of spherical region of of membrane. And then the vesicle moves across the cytoplasm and then it fuses with the external plasma membrane. And then the internal, the proteins that are reside in that vesicle, then just sort of diffuse out into the extracellular fluid. There's no crossing of any plasma membrane that occurs there. And so in a sense, well, I mean, a very real sense, the inside of these organelles is just outside the cell. It's just a sort of an outside inside, if you like. It's kind of similar to the way in which the gastrointestinal tract, right from the stomach through the anus, right from the mouth through to the anus, is basically outside of the body. I mean, it's located inside the body and that it's surrounded by the body, but you haven't actually crossed any any membrane 
if, if say, the food is just swallowed and goes into the stomach. It hasn't actually really entered the body yet. It's just contained within the body. And it needs to then, you know, cross the epithelium and be absorbed into the bloodstream or in the small intestine or wherever that happens. That has to happen before the, the food or other material actually enters into the body proper. So it's similar like that with a cell. It's sort of got the outside inside. And that's very useful for a lot of purposes, as we'll see in a moment. And it also means that these different membrane-enclosed organelles, which again includes the nuclear envelope, which is the membrane that surrounds the nucleus, the endoplasmic reticulum, the Golgi apparatus, as well as lysosomes, endosomes, and other vesicles. All of these are equivalent to each other in the sense that you don't need to cross a plasma membrane to get from one to the other. All you have to do is butt off from a vesicle, and then the vesicle moves along in the in the cytoplasm, and then fuses with another membrane, and then you know the protein constants are dumped out into into the inside of that structure. There are a number of structures that are not part of the endomembrane system. In particular, mitochondria and chloroplasts are outside of that system. And the reason for that is because mitochondria and chloroplasts are actually surrounded by two sets of double membrane layers. So each membrane layer consists of a, a double a lipid bilayer, so, so two layers of lipids. But, but that's a single membrane, right? The mitochondria, as well as the chloroplasts, have two of those double layers that surround them. And the reason for that is thought to be because of their evolutionary origins. It's thought that originally mitochondria and chloroplasts were free living organisms, which then became endosymbiotic. So they started living inside of larger cells and the uh, over evolutionary history, they became sort of dependent on those larger cells. And now, you know, we only find them inside uh, eukaryotic cells, but originally they were free living. And so there was sort of their original outside membrane. And then there was the membrane of the the host cell, if you like, um, that, that surrounded them. And so that's why they have now two membrane layers around them. And because of that, they are a separate system from the endomembrane system because the endomembrane, all of the components, there's only one lipid layer surrounding them, whereas the mitochondria and the chloroplasts are two. So so they, they are not part of the same conveyor belt system, as you like, where you can move things around between all these compartments with just, you know, a single vesicle butting off and then, um, and then fusing with somewhere else. Also, it's important to understand that the nucleus is actually topologically contiguous with the cytosol, so the, just the sort of the main fluid that forms the main part of the cell. It's a little bit confusing because the nucleus is an organelle, and you do actually have to pass through particular pores, which we'll talk about in a moment, to get from the cytosol into the nucleus. However, the nucleus is not a membrane-bound structure in the same way that, say, the endoplasmic reticulum or the Golgi apparatus are, because you don't have to cross a membrane to get in there. Actually, what happens is essentially the proteins or other th- and you know RNA and other things that move in there and out from the nucleus have to squeeze between gaps in the surrounding double membrane structure in order to get into the nucleus. So there's an envelope that surrounds the nucleus and that is the nuclear envelope and that's a sort of a, a double-layered structure. And then the proteins and other things squeeze between gaps in that structure, which is where the, the nuclear pores are. So proteins and RNA and other substances that need to traffic into and out of the nucleus, they don't cross a membrane into the nucleus and then cross another one or anything. What happens is they just squeeze between gaps in the nuclear envelope. And so that means that the interior of the nucleus is actually equivalent to the cytosol. And and that's important because it means the inside of the nucleus is also not part of the endomembrane system. The nuclear envelope is, which is sort of the membrane structure that surrounds the nucleus, but not the actual inside of the nucleus itself. Now, so far, we've mostly been talking about the endomembrane system, which is this system of, again, topologically equivalent membrane-bound structures inside the cytosol, so it's your endoplasmic reticulum, Golgi apparatus, endosomes, lysosomes, and also out to the, the cell surface. And all of these organelles 
can connect with each other via vesicular transport because they're equivalent topologically and so you don't have to cross a plasma membrane to move from one to the other. You just vesicles bud off and then they move across the cytosol and then they fuse with the uh, target membrane and then they dump out the contents. So that's how that works for the endomembrane system. But I have mentioned that there are parts of the cell that are outside of the endomembrane system, specifically the nucleus, as well as the mitochondria and the chloroplasts. There are also small organelles called peroxisomes, which are outside the endomembrane system, although I'm not really going to talk about them very much, but they're involved in oxidative you know, digestion of certain um, toxic chemicals and so forth. So how do proteins and other traffic get to uh, th these other organelles or other parts of the cell that aren't accessible via the endomembrane system? Also, how do proteins get from the cytosol into the endomembrane system in the first place? Well, there are two other mechanisms, again, aside from vesicular transport, uh, that, that are used here. The first is called gated transport, which is used to get access to the nucleus. And the second is called transmembrane transport, which is used to gain access to the mitochondria and chloroplasts, as well as into the endoplasmic reticulum in the first place. So what we're going to do for pretty much the entire rest of uh, the episode here is we're going to look at each of these three mechanisms in more detail. So again, we've been talking about the different organelles or parts of the cell and how they're related to each other topologically. We've established that there's an endomembrane system, which is sort of most of the organelles, and that uses vesicular transport. But you have to get into the endomembrane system initially, and that uses a different mechanism called transmembrane transport. That is also used to get to the mitochondria and chloroplasts because they're outside the endomembrane system because they've got double membranes around them. Finally, you've got to get to the nucleus, which is its own can of worms because to get in there, you basically have to squeeze between gaps in the nuclear envelope. And that uses a different system, again, called gated transport. So there's three different types of mechanisms here associated with the different sort of regions of the cell. And we're going to go through those one at a time. In doing so, I'm going to be talking about some of the different mechanisms that are used and also some of the functions of these particular organelles, so why they exist basically. And there's a lot more detail here that I'm kind of going to skip over a bit because this is sort of an introduction or an overview, but hopefully you'll sort of get the broad ideas uh, that we're wanting to cover. So first let's talk about nuclear transport. How do proteins get into the nucleus and also how, do, how does RNA get out of the nucleus? Because remember, genes are transcribed, converted from DNA to RNA in the nucleus. And th that RNA then has to get out of the nucleus to be translated in the cytoplasm. That's when the RNA is converted from being RNA to protein. That happens, that's done by ribosomes, which exist in the cytosol, in the cytoplasm. So basically, the RNA has got to get out of the nucleus to be translated into the cytosol. But proteins also have to get back into the nucleus, right? Because, the, you know, the nucleus needs proteins. It needs proteins in order to transcribe the DNA for a start. And there's lots of other functions that have to be performed in the nucleus. Cell division, for example, requires that the chromatids be pulled apart and there's proteins that are needed to keep the DNA bundled up correctly. There's lots of proteins that need to access the nucleus and do their stuff there. So they have to find a way of getting back from the cytosol, which is where they're translated, back into the nucleus. So the point is there's a lot of traffic. A lot of stuff needs to get out of the nucleus. A lot of stuff needs to get into the nucleus. And this has to be happening regularly. So how does this happen when the nucleus is surrounded by this membrane system, the uh, nuclear envelope? Well, it happens by transport through what are called nuclear pores. A nuclear pore is a large complex of proteins, which is called a pore complex, that spans the envelope. And it, it kind of, it, they kind of exist between gaps within the membrane, a double membrane system, if you like. So it, it's not quite the same as like an ion channel across the plasma membrane. It, it's sort of larger, but also it's, it's structured quite differently. And there are about 1,000 of these nuclear pore complexes in the nuclear envelope of a vertebrate cell. So, I mean, that's a lot, but it's actually not that many if you think of, compare it to, say, ion channels, where there might be... Well, a much, much larger number than that. So, so they're fairly large, uh, and each needs to sort of allow for quite a lot of traffic through it. Now, these 
pore complexes that consist of eight protein subunits arranged in kind of a circle. So it's like a symmetric relationship with the um, octahedral symmetry. And the basic mechanism here is that the proteins and also RNA, which needs to go out. So basically you've got RNA going out and proteins going in. And the basic mechanism is that the cell allows things to pass through the pores, but it does so in a controlled way. So it wants to make sure there need to be mechanisms to ensure that only proteins and other things that need to come into the nucleus are imported, and then only the RNA and other things that need to be exported are allowed out. You don't want to just have any old thing coming in and going out because then you don't have control of what needs to go where. So how is that selectivity managed? Well, let's start by talking about proteins that need to be imported into the nucleus. And that takes place by by way of what are called nuclear localization signals. And it, uh, one of these signals is basically just a sequence in a protein. So like a sequence of amino acids. Often it could be at the start of the, the protein, but it doesn't have to be. And these are fairly short sequences, you know, a few dozen nucleotide, uh, a few dozen amino acids, which basically say, hey, I, like this protein here, I need to go into the nucleus. So once that protein has been translated, so it's been, you know, converted from the RNA transcript, this nuclear localization sequence will, you know, float around essentially in in the cytosol. And eventually it will find a molecule to bind to that, the nuclear localization signal. And these molecules are called importins. So they're just just proteins essentially that bind to nuclear localization symbols. So you've got your signal, which is attached to the cargo protein that needs to go into the nucleus. And there's the important, which is like, oh, you know, I bind to that. And it binds to the signal. Uh, it, it It binds to the nuclear localization signal. This is effectively a way of tagging that protein for import into the nucleus. Similarly, there are export signals that tag proteins that need to be removed from the nucleus. So the basic idea here is that the cell has molecular mechanisms for tagging proteins that need to go into the nucleus and proteins that need to be exported from the nucleus. Now, what happens next is a little bit complicated and a bit hard to explain without a diagram. So I'm going to simplify it a little bit just to give you the basic idea. And the basic idea is this. There is another type of special molecule which is called RAN-GTP. So the GTP just stands for, you know, guanine triphosphate. So that's just basically a energy-rich molecule. And, and the RAN, just is that's just a particular protein. We don't need to worry about it too much. But the basic idea is what happens is that you've got your cargo protein with its nuclear localization symbol and it binds to important, right? And together, that complex is able to move through the nuclear pore and enter the nucleus, right? All well and good. Then what happens is when it arrives in the nucleus, the importin dissociates. So it sort of, it basically lets off its cargo and the cargo protein goes into the nucleus and all as well. But then it picks up a cargo of RAN-GTP. That then leads to the importin molecule going back out of the nucleus again and going back into the cytoplasm which then allows it to pick up another cargo of a protein to bring back in again. Now, this whole process requires energy. That's why there's RAN uh, GTP there. That's, uh, as part of this process, it's hydrolyzed to GDP, which is the 2-phosphate version that has less energy. Uh, So it needs to have a continual input of energy for this to keep going. So that's not surprising. You're moving things around selectively. That's going to require energy. And again, I've simplified the process a bit here, but the basic point is that the way I think about it is you've got this kind of cargo ship, which is the important, that is constantly moving into and then back out of uh, the nucleus and bringing the protein cargoes with it. But only ones, of course, that have the right signal saying, hey, I'm, I'm going into the nucleus. Um, but as it does so, it also moves back out cargoes of the RAN-GTP, uh, which kind of power it moving, the important moving back outside of the outside of the nucleus again. 
Now, I've talked about things moving into the nucleus, but there's basically the same process happens in reverse as well. There is a there's a protein called exportin, which does basically the same thing, except it starts from the nucleus, it picks up its cargo with nuclear export signals, and then moves outside of the nucleus and drops it off, and then comes back in again. So there's this continual system of importins bringing in their cargo with the right signals to bring them into the nucleus, and then exporting with their cargoes, taking them outside the nucleus. And this is all powered by RAN GTP protein with the, the, the triphosphates as an energy source. So that's the basic mechanism that is used to both transport proteins into the nucleus and also transport mostly messenger RNA and other types of RNA outside into the cytoplasm where, of course, they're needed. Um, and this has to be quite a regular large amount of traffic because obviously there's different genes being transcribed and needing to have the RNA in the cell and then, you know, proteins that need to come from the outside inside and messages and all sorts of things moving around. So this is a fairly regular uh, traffic. So note that this involves proteins moving across a double membrane system because the endomembrane system surrounding the nucleus has, has two membranes. It's sort of like a membrane sort of wound back on itself, but it doesn't cross the membrane structure directly. They pass through, the proteins pass through basically pores that are stuck in gaps between the membrane system. So that's what makes it distinct from what we're going to talk about next, which is transmembrane transport. So gated transport is not transmembrane transport because it doesn't directly pass across the membrane. It basically sneaks through gaps between it. What I'm now going to talk about moving from nuclear transport to transport to mitochondria and chloroplast is transmembrane transport. So remember I mentioned that mitochondria and chloroplast, as well as peroxisomes, but I won't say anything more about those, both of these organelles are outside the endomembrane system because they're surrounded by two membranes instead of just the one, which is the rest of the organelles in the endomembrane system. And that comes about because they have endosymbiosis. There's basically the original membrane of the ancestor prokaryote-like organisms and then the membrane surrounding that from the ancestor eukaryotic cell that gobbled them up, so to speak. So vesicular traffic's not going to work here because... Vesicular tra traffic only works if you've got two topologically equivalent compartments, so you can bud off a vesicle from one and then fuse to another. doesn't work here because there's two membrane systems, so you wouldn't be able to get into the, the inside membrane because you'd, you'd, you'd fuse with the outer one, but then you're sort of stuck in between the two membranes, so it doesn't work. Also, nuclear transport's not going to work because these aren't the nucleus, and they don't have the same nuclear pores uh, that exist uh, for the nucleus. So there needs to be a different mechanism here. And that mechanism, as I've said, is called transmembrane transport. So basically the proteins sneak directly across the membrane instead of passing through gaps between it. So how does this work? Well, first understand why are things going to the mitochondria in the first place. And I'll just talk about mitochondria just for simplicity, but similar mechanisms operate in the chloroplast. So the mitochondria originally, it's thought, had all of the genes necessary for its function when it was a free-living sort of prokaryote type organism. But over a long time of evolution, it's lost most of the genetic material and, and it only makes about 13 proteins that are necessary for its function. The rest of the proteins that it needs are coded for by genes that have moved back to the nucleus with, with all of the other genes uh, for the cell. That means that these proteins that are encoded by genes in the nucleus have to find some way of getting from the cytosol, which is where they're translated, just like other proteins, into the mitochondria. So how does that happen? Well, just like proteins that need to go into the nucleus, proteins that need to go into the mitochondria are tagged. So this is called a signal sequence. It's basically the same in, in concept as the nuclear localization signals, uh, but th these are just signals that direct the proteins to go, say, to the mitochondria, or again, the chloroplast, or wherever else. And again, often these can be at the, at the end terminal, which means basically the very start of the protein, but they're not always 
located there. So again, what we have is a situation where the ribosomes are translating along and they're sort of starting out and then the protein starts to be extruded from the, the ribosome and then you know the, the signal sequence, wherever it's located, becomes exposed to the cytosol. And what happens is that there are special proteins in the cytosol that are called chaperone proteins. And these bind to the protein that's coming out of the ribosome and prevent it from folding up. And this is important. We'll see why in, in uh, we'll see why that is in a moment. So these chaperone proteins prevent the protein from folding as it normally would as it comes out from the ribosome and also help to deliver it to special receptors on the mitochondrial out, outer membrane surface. So, so far we've got the protein with the signal sequence. It's bound by special chaperone proteins, specifically a main one is cytosolic heat shock protein, HSP70, but don't worry about that. It's just special proteins that help it to stay unfolded. And the signal sequence then binds to special receptors on the surface of the outer layer of the mitochondria. And then what happens is that these receptors on the cell on the outer surface of the mitochondria become associated with what's called a TOM complex. So the, the sort of key acronyms to remember here are TOM and TIM. So you can remember this because TOM stands for translocase of the outer membrane and TIM stands for translocase of the inner membrane. So there's a few different TIMs and they're just different protein complexes, right? But I'm just going to speak as if there's just one, just for simplicity. So the TOM is on the outside membrane and the TIM is on the inside membrane, remembering that there's a double uh, membrane system around the mitochondria. So you've got your protein with the signal sequence that associates with the receptor, and then that receptor in turn associates with the TOM complex, and the protein then enters into the TOM complex and begins to move into the intermembrane space, the space between the outer and inner mitochondrial membranes. As that occurs, the imported protein then becomes associated with the TIM complex, which is in the membrane of the, the inner mitochondrial membrane. And the protein then begins to move into the matrix, which is inside the, you know, the innermost space of, of the mitochondria, inside the inner membrane. And as it emerges there, the signal sequence is generally the first to emerge because that's usually at the end terminus, so the sort of head of the protein. That's snipped off because this job's done now. The protein's sort of entered where it needs to go. And then what happens is that special chaperone proteins, the mitochondrial versions, remember we talked about the cytosolic heat shock protein 70 that helped the protein to be targeted towards the mitochondria and helped to keep it unfolded in the cytosol. Well, there's the versions of those in the mitochondrial matrix, mitochondrial heat shock protein 70s. And these bind to the protein as it's coming through the, the TIM complex and basically pull it along. So this is powered by ATP, which is hydrolyzed ADP, so that acts as a source of energy. So more and more of these chaperone proteins are binding to the, the protein as it's coming in and pulling it in until it's all the way through the TOM complex, all the way through the TIM complex, and then it's pulled all the way through. And then finally, it's entered into the mitochondrial matrix where the chaperone proteins can dissociate and then the protein can fold up and achieve its sort of mature functional conformation. So hopefully you see why it's necessary to have these chaperone proteins in the cytosol and then in the mitochondria to keep the protein unfolded. The reason is because it has to sneak through first the TOM complex and then between the you know between the two membranes and the intermembrane space and then through the TIM complex. And, and these are fairly small channels that it has to pass through. It wouldn't be able to move through as if it was all if it was all folded up as a protein does in its functional form. It would be too big and too clunky it has to snake through basically these small small pores and so it has to stay unwound in order to do that this isn't the case for the nuclear pores because the nuclear pores are really big they're, they're fat and so they can take proteins that are that are wound up that are folded up but when you're directly crossing a membrane in this way it's necessary for the protein to be unfolded because it needs to snake through the, these sort of small channels through the membrane 
So for that reason, that the mechanism is very different and the imported proteins need to be kept unfolded until they're finally in the inner matrix space. So just to recap that, basically there are signal regions that tell the cell, hey, these proteins need to be imported into the mitochondria. So as soon as the proteins begin to emerge from the ribosome in, in the cytosol, special chaperone proteins bind to it. There's a receptor that binds to the signal sequence, which then in turn associates with receptors on the outer membrane of the mitochondria. The, mito, the protein to be imported into the mitochondria then passes through first a, a TOM complex, which is basically a channel that allows the imported protein to pass into the the intermembrane space in the mitochondria, then the protein passes through the TIM complex, which is the sort of channel to the internal space, so it's the channel through the inner mitochondrial membrane, and then it's pulled through both the, the TIM and ultimately the TOM complex by the chaperone proteins inside the matrix, it's pulled all the way through, signal, sequence is cleaved, and then it finally is able to fold up. So you basically sort of snake it through and it's pulled through two different complexes, your TOM and the TIM through the outer and then through the inner membrane. This is all I've been talking about in the context of mitochondria, but it's pretty similar in the case of chloroplasts, although there is an additional complication there because chloroplasts actually have a third level. <laughs> it just it keeps going, right? There's a there's the outer, the inner membrane, and then finally there is uh, there are the thylakoid membrane, which is a, a, another internal stack of membranes, which is where the photosynthesis takes place. So there's another signal that needs to tell it, hey, I've gone through the outer membrane, I've gone through the inner membrane, and now finally I actually need to move into the thylakoid, and so it has to move through there again. So there's a whole other sequence that has to get it in there, but I'm not going to go through the details of that now. So the, the point there is that hopefully I've illustrated the basic process there. It's quite different to the nuclear pore case because, as I've said, the protein can't just move through in a folded up form, it needs to snake its way through, not across one, but actually across two different membranes uh, using the TOM and the TIM complex and the chaperone proteins to help it. So that's how proteins get into mitochondria and into chloroplasts. Now let's finally turn to the endomembrane system, which I started off talking about, but we haven't come back to it so far. So I've talked about how proteins get into the nucleus. They pass, through, they pass between gaps in the nuclear envelope, which are controlled by nuclear pores. We've talked about how proteins get into the mitochondria and in chloroplasts because they are able to, they snake through these channels that cross the double membrane system. Now I'm going to talk about how proteins first get into the endomembrane system, which is sort of everything else in the cell, and then how they move through the endomembrane system because it's like a conveyor belt. There's many different phases of it and the different organelles do different things as you go from the endoplasmic reticulum to the Golgi apparatus to endosomes and lysosomes and so forth. So how do proteins get into the endomembrane system in the first place? You might think, well, aren't they sort of made there? Well, they sort of are, but the important thing to understand is to take everything back to the beginning. Proteins are translated by ribosomes from mRNA templates that are exported from the nucleus into the cytosol, and which where the ribosomes are, and the ribosomes then translate them. And so the proteins are made in the cytosol. That's why they then have to be exported into the nucleus or into the mitochondria, or in this case, into the endoplasmic reticulum, which is where the sort of endomembrane structure sort of begins, if you like. However, there's a little catch here because the endoplasmic reticulum is divided into sort of two bits, if you like, the rough endoplasmic reticulum and the smooth endoplasmic reticulum. And there's an important difference between them. The rough endoplasmic reticulum is called rough because it kind of looks sort of bumpy or spiky if you look at it through the microscope. But the reason it looks like that is because it has ribosomes studded all across its surface, very large numbers of them. So what's, what's the deal here? Aren't the ribosomes sort of hanging around in the cytosol just merrily translating proteins wherever they are well yes there are lots of ribosomal ribosomes that just are translating wherever in the cytosol but it turns out that certain classes of proteins 
they begin translation in the cytosol, just like any other protein, but they contain signals. Remember, we keep talking about these signal peptides. Well, they're coming back again. Some proteins contain signal peptides, not to take them to the mitochondria, but actually to say, hey, I need to go into the endoplasmic reticulum. When that happens, again, often these signal sequences are at the end terminus, so the very start of the protein, but not always. They can be in the middle. They can be in different places. But let's say that they're at the start, just to simplify things. If these signal sequences are at the very start of the protein, what happens is the ribosome starts translating them. And then once that signal sequence has been translated and pokes out into the cytosol, special recognition particles called signal recognition particles then bind to the signal sequences. And in turn, these signal recognition particles bound to the growing protein then bind to signal recognition particle receptors on the ER membrane. So it's, it's very similar in the overall logic of it to how proteins are imported into nucleus, where you have the nuclear localization signals, which then bind to the importin, which then takes the protein across the nuclear pore into to the membrane, and then the, the special signal sequence is cleaved off. It's pretty much the same thing here. You've got the ER signal sequence, which is which binds to the signal recognition particles, which then move to the surface of the endoplasmic reticulum, the rough endoplasmic reticulum, and then bind to a receptor for the signal recognition particle on the ER surface. That in turn leads to the growing polypeptide chain being inserted into special channels inside the ER lumen. So, well, these channels, I should say, they, they cross from the cytosol into the ER lumen. That's just the inside of the endoplasmic reticulum. And the growing polypeptide then begins to be extruded into the inside of the ER lumen. So it basically what happens is it starts being translated in the cytosol, but then once the signal sequence, the ER signal sequence uh, emerges, it's like, oh, hang on, this needs to go into the endoplasmic reticulum. So the signal recognition particle notices that, brings it over to the ER, and uh, once that's recognized, it, it, the growing polypeptide chains inserted into the channels, which allow it to be then extruded into the ER lumen. And as, as typically happens, as that's occurring, the signal the signal sequence is chopped off because again, its job is finished and it, it doesn't need to be there anymore. So that's the basic idea. There's a, a signal a signal sequence that's recognized by proteins, which then carries it over and the, the protein is then extruded and it's finished being translated so that it's extruded and released into the ER lumen. So it starts in the cytosol, but ends up in the ER. So unlike in the mitochondria where it's translated fully and then it moves into and, and crosses crosses the membranes into the mitochondrial matrix here the, the, the protein is only begins to be translated in cytosol and then it finishes being translated into the ER lumen even though the ribosome itself stays in the cytosol so that's why these ribosomes associate with the outer surface of the ER because they're translating proteins that need to end up in the ER lumen so that's why you have the rough ER whereas the endoplasmic reticulum with all of these bound ribosomes associated with it once the protein's been translated those ribosomes drops are done, and so typically they dissociate back into the cytosol. They don't they don't stick around, so they're not permanently affixed there for the most part. They're they're transiently located there when they're actually translating a protein. Now there is a smooth endoplasmic reticulum that lacks these ribosomes. Its main function is in lipid synthesis, so it makes lipids that are necessary for the plasma membrane and also for the endomembrane and other systems that require lipids inside the cell. It also makes steroid hormones, which obviously are related because they're lipids as well, and it, it involved in some sort of de detoxification processes. So hepatocytes, which are liver cells, have very large, smooth endoplasmic reticulum because that's where the enzymes reside that are necessary for detoxifying the blood, for example. So 
although we're talking mostly here about the rough endoplasmic reticulum, the smooth endoplasmic reticulum is also quite important. Now, what I've described so far is the process of bringing proteins from outside in the cytosol into the endoplasmic reticulum. And this process is called co-translational translocation because it's it occurs while the proteins are being translated, not they're translated and then they're moved in like in the mitochondria. So it's, it's quite different there. But it's more complicated than that because there also needs to be a way of getting transmembrane proteins into the endoplasmic reticulum. And basically what this means is that, remember we talked in the previous episode about transmembrane proteins that span the membrane of the plasma membrane, you know, the outside of the cell. There's lots of proteins that extend on either side of that membrane, and they have to get there somehow. You might think, well, aren't they just produced in the cytosol and then sort of stuck in there? For the most part, no. For the most part, actually, the way it works is that these proteins, they begin to be translated, as all proteins begin to be translated in the cytosol, but then because they have their, again, their ER uh, signal sequences, those are recognized by the appropriate proteins, which then move them across to the ER, the surface of the endoplasmic reticulum, and then they're inserted into the translocation channel and so forth. So that 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 all happens normally. But then what happens is that there's actually an additional signal sequence that's a stop sequence. So the way it works is that the signal sequence says, hey, stick me into the ER lumen and start basically funneling me into the ER lumen, kind of like poking spaghetti through a hole, if you like, except the spaghetti's being formed as you're poking it through because the protein's being translated. However, of Unlike in the previous case where the whole protein is just pushed all the way through the hole and then the signal sequence is clipped and then it is released and enters the ER lumen. In this case, there's a stop sequence. So at some point of poking the spaghetti through the hole, there's a sequence that when it enters or when it sort of reaches the, the channel says, oh, time to stop. And so what happens is then the protein disassociates from the translocation channel. Uh, and, and this stop uh, sequence will have to be hydrophobic because it needs to exist inside the, the plasma membrane. So obviously there has to be a way to hold it there. It won't be stable if it's hydrophilic. So it needs, this need, always needs to be a hydrophobic region to be stable within within the membrane. Now, at this point, the fact that there's a stop signal, it, it doesn't mean that the protein's done. It will continue to be translated. So the noodle keeps growing, if you like, but it just keeps growing in the cytosol. It doesn't keep being pushed into the ER lumen uh, because it's being fixed in place at the location of the stop sequence. So depending on the location of the initial start, you know, signal transfer sequence, as well as the final sort of stop transfer uh, sequence, you can have any combination of how much of the protein is in the cytosol and how much in the ER. You can have most of it in the ER, most of it in the cytosol, or some combination of those. You can have transmembrane protein sort of wherever you like. Indeed, you can actually, through having more than one start and stop sequence, have multiple transmembrane regions that cross the membrane multiple times. So all you have to do to have that is multiple start and stop regions. So it's sort of threaded, the protein is threaded across the membrane multiple times. And there are many important proteins that have this form. So G G protein coupled receptors, for example, are a very common type of protein that have, I believe it's seven transmembrane uh, helix regions. And we'll talk more about those in a future episode when we do cell signaling. But the point is that there are lots and lots of proteins that have this um, multiple transmembrane region, and that just comes about through these multiple start and stop regions, where it basically like threads it through and then tells it to stop, and then tells it to thread it through again, tells it to stop, so that the protein can sort of um, sort of loop in and out uh, across across the membrane. And so there'll be bits that are inside the ER lumen and bits that are outside in the cytosol. Now, many of these need to end up on the outside of the cell, but but the the beauty of this system is that the proteins can be produced and sort of organized and fixed up entirely within the cell. 
you've got part of it in the ER lumen, part of it in the cytosol, but that's still, all still in the cell. And then through vesicle budding and fusion, which we'll talk about in a moment, because the endomembrane system is all topologically equivalent, you can just move that whole unit to the outside of the cell and basically put the proteins on the outside surface of the cell without having to like move them through another or across another membrane. As you might imagine, that's going to be a bit of a nightmare when the whole thing is studded inside a membrane. How do you move like a bit of the membrane through a membrane? It doesn't really make sense. No, instead, you, you just move the whole membrane and, f and fuse it with the outer surface of the cell. So this is a really elegant system that the cell has for basically sticking the proteins in the membrane and then just moving the membrane through in little pieces called vesicles, right, um, through the different um, interior organelles and eventually out to the outer surface of the cell where it just uh, sits and does and the proteins then go and do their work okay but apart from the fact that okay sure there are some proteins that need to be stuck into the membrane which then uh, eventually move to the outside of the cell uh, on the outer cell membrane what other functions does the endoplasmic reticulum form specifically the rough endoplasmic reticulum that has all of these ribosomes studded on it i mean what what does it do why do some proteins need to be put in there apart from the cell surface ones well Many of the proteins that need to eventually go to organelle's endomembrane system, including the endoplasmic reticulum itself, as well as the Golgi apparatus and lysosomes, and any proteins that would need to be excreted from the cell eventually, most of those proteins are directed into the endoplasmic reticulum. Because again, it's just an easy way to get them to those locations. Otherwise, they would have to cross a membrane directly, just like the proteins do that are directed to the mitochondria and that, that's quite difficult to do so instead of doing it that way the cell just sticks everything that needs to go there into the endoplasmic reticulum basically on the conveyor belt and then they'll just naturally be moved through vesicle budding and fusion which we'll, we'll get to in a moment so it's this very convenient system where you just sort of stick everything in the er and then give them signal sequences obviously that tells tells the er where it needs to go and then they'll eventually find their way to where they need to go uh, in a sort of straightforward way that doesn't require lots of additional receptors so that's why they're all put in there. But the ER do isn't just a place where you put proteins and that, that sorts proteins out where they need to go. I mean, it does do that, but it also has a more active role. It is also involved in assisting protein folding. Protein folding is a very complicated process that involves the protein going from its initial sort of straight linear configuration, which is how it is originally translated, into a very complicated folded up form, which is then going to be active and allow us to do its functions. This typically doesn't happen spontaneously for a lot of proteins in eukaryotes. In fact, it requires help from other proteins that are called chaperone proteins. We already mentioned those when we talked about the proteins that are imported into the mitochondria. In fact, those proteins actually stopped it from folding up because it needs to be, you know, kept in the spaghetti form to, in order to enter, you know, remember through the Tom and the Tim channels in order to get in the matrix. But in this case, proteins, once they're inside the rough endoplasmic reticulum, do need to fold up. And so there is a huge variety of families of chaperone proteins that help with this i won't talk through them all here it won't really mean much anyway but there's lots and lots of proteins that help with folding up of the proteins uh, as they're produced and dumped out inside the endoplasmic reticulum only properly folded up proteins are transported from the rough er to the golgi apparatus which is sort of next in line along the conveyor belt unfolded proteins cause an unfolded protein response as a stress response in the endoplasmic reticulum so basically if there's a buildup of unfolded proteins this triggers a signal which uh, is sent back to the nucleus and tells it, hey, we need we need help here. And basically what happens is that more of the chaperone proteins are produced uh, to, to help clear out the backlog of, of unfolded proteins. So there's an elaborate mechanism here of dealing with proteins that don't fold up properly. Another very important thing that the endoplasmic reticulum does is it engages in protein glycosylation. 
Glycosylation is a process in which a carbohydrate is covalently attached to, in this case, a protein, although it can also be lipids. Most proteins in the endoplasmic reticulum are glycosylated by adding fairly large oligosaccharide chains uh, to asparagine side chain. So, so there's a particular amino acid, asparagine. Remember, there's 20 different ones. So this one, asparagine. Uh, the side chains of these asparagines, uh, I don't know really why it's asparagines, but those are the amino acid side chains where the oligosaccharides, so the, the big sugar chains essentially, are, are added to. Um, they're not added to every one, and it differs a bit between different proteins, but most proteins will have some sort of glycosylation occurring. This modification serves a number of functions. In particular, some proteins won't fold properly unless they're glycosylated. Also, other proteins are not stable unless they contain those uh, oligosaccharides. So, so the oligosaccharides seem to help with protein folding instability. And they're added on to all of the proteins or most of the proteins that find their way into the endoplasmic reticulum. As I mentioned, th these this, uh, these sugar chains that are added help the endoplasmic reticulum to recognize misfolded proteins. And basically the way this works, although it's quite complicated, but just to give you the idea, is that th these oligosaccharides, these big sugar units, are added to the protein in particular places. And, and if the protein, if, the, if chaperone proteins within the endoplasmic reticulum don't find these sugar units where they're expecting them to, then they know that the protein hasn't folded up properly and, and therefore the sugar units haven't been added. And then it's like, well, okay, we've got to unfold it or we, we've got to try it again. We, we, we've got to unfold this bit and then add the sugar back on. So it, it basically allows the protein, the, the chaperone proteins within the endoplasmic reticulum to know whether the, the protein in question has folded up correctly or not. So it seems that the sugar, uh, the sugars that are added play a critical role there. If, however, despite the cell's best efforts, the misfolded proteins can't be corrected, they can't get them to fold correctly. What happens is that they're tagged, exported from the endoplasmic reticulum, and then degraded by a special system called the proteasome system, which is a big complicated, end. it's basically like a tube that just kind of, I think it's like a grinder. The misfolded protein goes in and it gets churned up and, and broken down into its pieces, which are then recycled. So um, th that's back in the cytosol. So anything that sort of doesn't doesn't make the cut after you know it's like i guess students at university like they get a few tries and they, they try to help give it a remedial plan then if it doesn't work they're they're expelled because well insufficient academic performance or whatever however you want to call it they're they're exported um through special channels and then broken up in the in the size of like i guess the university uh metaphor doesn't really work there because <laughs> we don't want to degrade our students but anyway so the point is that the there are complex mechanisms involving adding protein chains and, and many chaperone proteins within the ER that help proteins to fold up correctly and and give them a few sort of goes but if it doesn't work then they're eventually um, exported and degraded for those proteins that do correctly fold with you know the chaperones and all the oligosaccharides that have been added and so forth and again this also includes proteins that are just floating around within the lumen and also those that are studded in the membrane so we're talking about sort of both cases there transmembrane proteins and uh, proteins just within the lumen as long as they're folded up correctly then they'll be moved along to the golgi apparatus which is the next in the sort of conveyor belt of the endomembrane system but it's at this point that we need to talk about transport vesicles which i mentioned a number of times but haven't really explained in detail uh, and the reason that we need to talk about them here is because at, at, so far the mechanisms of transport that we've discussed have not involved vesicles but at this point, moving from the rough ER into the Golgi apparatus, this is where vesicles first appear. And, and as I mentioned, vesicle, vesicular transport is the main mechanism of transport from different regions of the endomembrane system. So this is the first place where we're seeing that. You need to have special mechanisms to get the proteins into the ER in the first place, which are the you know signal recognition sequences and, and the translocation channels and all that that we talked about. But that's to get in in the first place. Now to move along you know different 
passing the conveyor belt, that's when uh, we're going to use the vesicular trafficking. So a vesicle is a structure inside or sometimes outside the cell that consists of a lipid bilayer that surrounds some sort of internal space. So often there'll be proteins or some other substance that are they're sort of sitting around in, inside the bubble there. So I think of a vesicle as a bubble, basically. A bubble surrounded by a, bi a bilipid membrane and then containing stuff. In this case, it's generally going to be proteins. It could be ions or, I mean, it could be all sorts of things. But here it's generally going to be protein, uh, you know, protein goods effectively that need to be moved around. Now, many vesicles are surrounded by coats, which is a collection of proteins that help to give it shape to basically curve the membrane. Membranes will spontaneously curve, but often they need sort of help to bud off. And the, the coat of the vesicle are special types of proteins that surround it and sort of uh, bend it and, and prepare it for budding. Budding is the process where basically a bit of the membrane is pinched off to form a little um, to form a little sort of spherical unit that is a vesicle, which then can float through the cytosol and fuse with another membrane. That's how vesicular trafficking works. Now, this budding off process uh, requires these special coat proteins, which again help the budding occur because they're not just going to bud off spontaneously. They'll need they need to be pinched, and the proteins do the pinching. So there are three different types of vesicle coats called clathrin. COP1 and COP2. I don't know why they're called that. There's probably something you can look up, but for our purposes, it doesn't really matter very much. And I'm not really going to talk that much about them. I just mention them because you'll see them if you sort of look into materials here. And they're relevant because they're used in different places. So COP2 or COP2 are the special proteins that, again, pinch out the vesicles from the endoplasmic reticulum to the Golgi apparatus. COP1 or COP1 protein, vesicular coat proteins are those that are used to move vesicles back the other way from the Golgi apparatus back to the endoplasmic reticulum. And finally, clathrin is used to move between other components of the endomembrane system, so including the plasma membrane, endosomes, Golgi to secretory vesicles, and so forth. So they're used in different parts of the endomembrane system, but, but hitherto I'm not really going to worry too much about the distinction between them. You know, they're different proteins and they have their own specific functions, but the basic idea is that they just form a little cage surrounding the membrane that will form the vesicle, which helps to pinch it off and then um, pull it into a distinct unit. There's there's also a another protein which is called dynamin. So you can think of the clathrin coat as kind of like forming a cage, which buds the membrane together. And then dynamin is like a noose that pulls around the little neck that's left and pinches it off so that the vesicle is detached from the source membrane. And then it floats through the cytosol and eventually reaches its, its target membrane where it fuses with it. So, so that's the basic idea of how vesicular transport works. Now, I mentioned that these vesicles are sort of just floating around the cytosol, but, but they're, not, they're not actually just sort of floating through it typically. They're actually guided by the cytoskeleton. So they're actually pulled along by special proteins that sort of walk along the, uh, the cytoskeleton, which is a, a network of tubes that connect different parts of the cell and, and give it structure. And I'll talk about that. The cytoskeleton is a whole interesting other topic for another episode. So I'm not going to go into details of that here. But they're actually these vesicles are actually pulled along by special proteins that kind of literally walk along the, the cytoskeleton and, and pull its cargo of vesicles with it until it reaches the required spot. So it's it's more complicated than this, but I'm just going to talk about it as if they float through the cytosol, just again for, for a bit of simplicity here. So I've talked a bit about how vesicles bud off. It's basically these clathrin and similar coating proteins that surround it, pinch it forward, and then diamond sort of ties the noose off, and then it pinches off, the, the coating dissociates, and then the vesicle floats through and goes to where it needs to. But how does the vesicle dock on the other end? How, how does it deliver its cargo to where it needs to? 
Well, the whole process kind of happens in reverse. Basically, there's special proteins uh, called RAB, R-A-B proteins, which associate with uh, what are called tethering proteins. So again, as usual, there's a kind of a signal and a, and a receptor for that signal. So the tethering proteins are found on the target membrane. RAB are found on the vesicle. So RAB associates with the tethering proteins. That's basically saying, oh, you know, this is where we need to go. This is where we need to be. We found our target. Then in order to sort of bring the bring the vesicle very close to the target membrane, because they have to be very close to each other in order to fuse, you've got to expel whatever water exists between them. So that requires basically special mechanisms to kind of pull them very close. And there are special proteins called snare proteins. And you can think of them as kind of like, uh, you know, those... Uh, I'm not exactly how to just those like metal twisting things that you have on bread or whatever that you twist them around and they sort of um, form a tight tight seal so you can you know you can use them for tying bread or like combining wires together or something like that uh, I don't quite know what they're called but anyway it's kind of like that these proteins the snare proteins are basically they kind of twist around each other so there's one of the snare proteins on the vesicle and then one on the target membrane and when they get close enough to each other, they twist around each other to form a kind of a tight seal between the membranes of the vesicle and, and the target membrane, wherever it is, and thereby allowing the membranes to come into contact. And then when they do, they'll fuse together. Because remember, previous episode we talked about the lipid bilayer. It's the the lipid molecules all sort of move freely between, uh, sort of laterally across the membrane. And so once the lipids are in direct contact with each other, they'll fuse together naturally. So you just have to bring them really close to each other, and that's what the snare proteins are for. And then the, the proteins will fuse, and now there's no barrier between the inside of the vesicle and the wherever the target, me- wherever the inside of the target membrane is. So the the cargo protein will just naturally diffuse into wherever it's going. So again, basically, it's the signal proteins called RAB on the outside surface of the vesicle, which find their way and bind to a tethering protein that then pulls in the vesicle, allowing the snare proteins, one on the vesicle and one on the target membrane, to uh, sort of wind up with each other, pulling the vesicle very close together and forming a tight seal, which then allows it to join up and fuse with the, the target membrane and dump out its cargo. So that's how the delivery mechanism works for vesicle vesicular transport. I should say there are other, there are some other mechanisms of vesicular delivery that don't require full fusion. So there's a mechanism called kiss and run, where the vesicle basically just comes close enough to sort of just touch the target membrane, dumps out its cargo, and then sort of runs off again without a full fusion, which where it sort of joins into and becomes part of the target membrane. Uh, but I'm not going to focus on that too much here. I think that's less well understood than the full fusion mechanism. And we only need to get a general idea of how this fusion transport works. So I've talked about some of the mechanisms of fusion transport, but just sort of coming back to how it relates the endoplasmic reticulum to the Golgi apparatus, which is the next in the endo- endomembrane system. Well, the basic idea is that what you've got is you've got these vesicles that are constantly butting off from the ER and traveling to the Golgi apparatus and delivering folded up and kind of almost ready to go proteins into the Golgi apparatus. There's also reverse traffic. So there's stuff that's going from the Golgi apparatus back to the endoplasmic reticulum. Let's now then talk about the Golgi apparatus. The Golgi apparatus is a series of compartments that are kind of like, as I said, a layer of pancakes stacked against each other. That's a bit different from the endoplasmic reticulum. And an important difference is that the Golgi apparatus is highly structured. So unlike the endoplasmic reticulum, where there's not a particular like forward and backwards part of it, it just, it's kind of one thing. The Golgi, the stack of of Golgi um, compartments are separated from each other so that you can't just move straight from one stack to another one. You, 
the only way to get there is by butting off in a vesicle and then the vesicle moves to the next one and then fuses with it. That, that's different from the endoplasmic reticulum, which is all interconnected. Also, the Golgi apparatus is highly structured. So there's a cis-Golgi network, which is the closest, basically, stack to the endoplasmic reticulum, and a trans-Golgi network, which is the furthest away. And then there's various intermediate medial stages in between. And each of these kind of layers, if you like, uh, in the Golgi apparatus has its own distinct function. So they have a unique set of enzymes that are used for carrying out particular purposes. And the, the membrane structure is different. So they're structurally and functionally distinct from each other, unlike the different the different uh, parts of the rough endoplasmic reticulum, which are all you know, kind of similar to each other, just in a different place. Not so with the Golgi apparatus. It's all highly structured in a kind of a linear way, the, the cis, the medial, and then the trans parts to it. And there's multiple layers. And each of them connects to each other via these, not directly, but indirectly by, via these vesicles that bud off and then fuse with, with the next bit. But I've talked about it as if it's a conveyor belt, but it, it's actually multiple conveyor belts because the vesicles are going both forwards and backwards. The vesicles are carrying proteins forward from cis to trans and eventually onto secretory granules and other vesicles that will fuse with the outer cell membrane. That's in the forward direction. But there are, there are also vesicles carrying proteins in the backward direction, which is from trans to the cis-Golgi and ultimately back to the rough endoplasmic reticulum. So there's traffic in both directions occurring through uh, this vesicular budding and, and transportation. Now, I mentioned that each of these stacks has its own set of enzymes, its own, its own structure, its own functions. They're all carrying out different specified reactions. But you might ask, well, what are they doing? I mean, the endoplasmic reticulum's already been busy sorting out proteins and modifying them through glycosylation and other stuff like that, helping them fold up. What is the Golgi apparatus doing that the endoplasmic reticulum hasn't already done? Well, in a sense, it's more of the same. So the Golgi apparatus doesn't help with protein folding. That's already sorted out in the endoplasmic reticulum. Remember, unfolded or improperly folded proteins don't leave the endoplasmic reticulum. They're sorted out there. However, the Golgi apparatus is very important with glycosylation. Remember, that's adding of the uh, of the oligosaccharides, these sort of sugar molecules on the surface or the outside of the proteins. So the Golgi apparatus is highly involved in that as well, editing what the endoplasmic reticulum has done and then adding more oligosaccharides on. So there's a lot more sugar processing that happens there. Again, we don't fully understand the purpose of all of these um, all of these oligosaccharides that are added, although it appears that they do perform particularly important functions, especially on the outside of the cell for transmembrane proteins. These um, these oligosaccharides seem to play an important role in basically just sort of protecting the outside of the cell. I think I mentioned this in the previous episode, just sort of keeping things at a distance. So they, they also limit the degree to which proteins are chomped down or, or digested by um, uh, proteolytic enzymes inside the cell. So those are two purposes that they serve, but there's probably others as well. So a lot of what's happening in the different compartments, the different layers in the stack of the Golgi apparatus is just different enzymes performing different um, glycosylation functions. I won't go through all those because they're kind of complicated, but just think that there's sort of different things happening in each of the stacks, and they have their own set of enzymes and, and uh, associated lipid structure for that. Now, one other thing I want to say about the Golgi apparatus is that I've been talking as if the only way to get from one you know, layer in the stack, transmedial and cis and so forth, to the next one is via vesicle budding off and, trans and transportation, and that absolutely does occur. However, it's also thought that the entire Golgi apparatus is dynamic. So it's not just static and, and each of the layers sits there. What actually is thought to happen is that you start off with the cis layer and that whole that whole stack eventually matures and moves up and becomes the medial layer. And then that whole stack eventually matures and moves on to becomes the trans layer and so forth. And it, and it keeps going to the very end. So 
it's kind of like, you know, cohorts of people, they, they gradually get older and they get promoted and they move up the organization. It's not like that there's a, a set of people that are like always, you know, new, new entry or always in middle management or whatever. It's, it's different cohorts that mature and move along. At the same time, you've got vesicles moving back and forward between each of these different layers. So it's a very dynamic process where you have the whole stacks that are maturing and moving on, as well as vesicles budding and moving off backwards and forwards between them. As well as, of course, vesicles moving backwards and forwards between the endoplasmic reticulum and the Golgi apparatus itself. Now, there is a directionality to this. The directionality is basically over, sort of overall, the directionality is forwards from the endoplasmic reticulum towards the cis, medial trans, and then out towards the further, more peripheral as, uh, parts of the endoplasm, more peripheral parts of the endosome system, uh, more peripheral parts of the endomembrane system which are lysosomes, endosomes, and eventually the salt surface, which I'll talk about in a moment. So there is a directionality to it, but there's a lot of movement forwards and backwards in, in both directions. Having discussed the endoplasmic reticulum and having discussed the Golgi apparatus now, I'm going to conclude by talking a bit about lysosomes and vacuoles. So once the proteins have moved from the endoplasmic reticulum all the way through the Golgi apparatus, they're then transported to the next stage in the endomembrane system. And that differs depending on the final destination of the proteins, but in some cases it's going to be to lysosomes. Lysosomes are membrane-bound organelles contained in, in many animal cells, and they're basically spherical, so they kind of look like vesicles, but but unlike, like, unlike vesicles, they're not just sort of temporary structures that are used to move things. Uh, they have a very important function in breaking down many types of biomolecules, so they contain hydrolytic enzymes, and lysosomes' enzymes are designed to function in fairly low pH, so 4.5 to 5 pH is optimal for these enzymes. So it's kind of like the stomach in that it is acidic for the enzymes to function properly. And there are many different types of lysosomes, and they all have different compositions specialized for different uh, enzymes for metabolizing different compounds. And so lysosomes are very important for metabolizing different different things. So this would include things that have been netinocytosed, perhaps toxins or pathogens, or parts of the cell like mitochondria that aren't needed anymore that need to be broken down. So many of those things can be transported into lysosomes and then broken down. Of course, you need enzymes there to do that. And so many of the enzymes that are produced in the endoplasmic reticulum and then moved through the Golgi apparatus eventually need to be put into lysosomes so that those lysosomes are ready to break down uh, whatever, whatever they need to, to um, basically metabolize those bonds and break down the biomolecules into the smaller components. So that's one example of a sort of a final destination, if you like, of proteins through the endomembrane system. There are others, other proteins that go to secretory vesicles. So they're exported out to uh, the cell surface and then dumped into the extracellular space. So an example of this would be neurotransmitters and neurons, which are involved in the signaling process between two different uh, neurons, or hormones for any cell that produces hormones. So these are examples of, of cases where proteins that need to be actually exported into the extracellular space be between the cells. Additionally, there are transmembrane cells that need to be exported to the cell surface, but, but stay attached because they're transmembrane proteins on the surface of the cell membrane. So they're not exported uh, so much as they sit on the surface. So that's another destination of proteins. So there's quite a few final destinations here, including the lysosomes, secretory vesicles, the cell surface, as well as other structures called endosomes, uh, which I'm not really going to talk about here. Uh, some types of plant and, and fungus cells also have vacuoles, which are basically big storage compartments. Uh, they're particularly used for storing, you know, like energy sources, starch and so forth uh, for, you know, use later. That is another endpoint for some types of proteins that need to be involved in that, but not so much found in animal cells. 
So that brings me to the conclusion of the discussion of this intracellular protein sorting. And before we finish out the episode, let me then go for a brief review of some of the things we've talked about, because we have gone through a lot here. So the starting point here was talking about the different sets of organelles and structures that are found inside a eukaryotic cell and the topological relationships between them. So remember, we've got one big system called the endomembrane system, which relates most of the structures inside a cell, including the plasma membrane, so the very outer membrane, endosomes, lysosomes, vacuoles, the Golgi apparatus, endoplasmic reticulum, and the nuclear envelope. All of these are equivalent to each other in that you can get from one to the other just by vesicle budding off and then fusing. And we talked about the mechanisms of that. However, there are also regions of the cell that are inaccessible to this endomembrane system. There's the nucleus, which is contiguous with the cytosol, except set except it's split off from it because it's surrounded by the nuclear envelope. So there has to be a different way to get into that. And also there's the mitochondria and the chloroplast, which are surrounded by two layers of membranes, not just the one as in the case of the endomembrane system. And so there has to be yet another method for getting proteins into those. And so we talked about each of those three methods. We talked about the gated transport, which moves proteins through the nuclear pore complexes into the nucleus. We talked about transmembrane transport, which moves proteins in an unfolded state across both of the double membrane systems surrounding mitochondria and also chloroplasts. And we talked about vesicular transport, which allows vesicles with containing proteins and other materials to bud off and move from one compartment to another and then fuse and dump out their cargo. And each of those different mechanisms of, of protein transport has their own associated you know, proteins and and complexes and machinery associated with it. The very basic idea of how it all works, though, is that each protein, when it's produced in the cytosol, well, all of those that need to move out of the cytosol, have associated signal sequence that tells the cell where it needs to go, be it into the nucleus, into the mitochondria, or into the endoplasmic reticulum. And these signal sequences are recognized by appropriate proteins, which then essentially carry or help the protein move to where it needs to go, again, nucleus, ER, mitochondria, whatever, and then binds with receptors in that location which help it to move inside again be it through the nuclear pore complex or the tom and the tim complexes which help it to move into the mitochondria or the translocation channels which help it to move into the ER lumen there are also special mechanisms that allow the proteins that are being translocated into the ER lumen to wedge and sort of just stay stuck inside the stuck within the plasma membrane so that they can then be trans permanent transmembrane proteins. We talked about how that works through a, a sort of a sequence of start and stop signals that allow it to sort of start moving through, but then become wedged in there and not move any further through it. And we also talked about some of the mechanisms of vesicular budding involving, you know, clathrin and COP102 and the, the other coat proteins, which help it to pinch off. And then the, the dynamin protein, which kind of is the noose that tightens it up. And then there's the rab and the tethering and the snare proteins, which help to bring the vesicle into its target and then bind it up and, and fuse it together. And so there's all of these complex mechanisms that help to ensure that proteins are recognized and transported and moved into and get to where they need to go. And eventually most of these signal sequences are, are cleaved off once their job is done, although sometimes they're not, as in the case of some of those that end up embedded in the in the membranes, for example, for the transmembrane proteins. So hopefully that's sort of fairly clear. Although the details are quite complicated, the basic mechanisms are sort of comparable or sort of similar in, in many different cases. And so this is a this has been a fairly brief summary of the endomembrane system and the different organelles and the, the protein transport and sorting mechanisms within the cell. There's obviously a lot more to say here. And in a future episode, we'll look a bit more about how proteins um, 
move in a future episode we'll look a bit more about how cells endocytose that so they take up material from the external environment and bring them into the cell which we didn't really talk about here and i'll also talk more about cell signaling so how cells talk to each other and send signals from one cell to another so look out for those those will be coming soonish hopefully if you have enjoyed this episode consider making a donation to the podcast you can make a one-off paypal donation or become a patreon supporter um, by going to the, the patreon the science of everything podcast if you'd like to send me an email you can do so at my email address which is fods12 at gmail.com that's fods12 at gmail.com please also consider leaving a favorable review on itunes or the other aggregator of your choice that helps to send the word out about the podcast finally you can also give the podcast page a like on facebook if you'd like to again support the show and also get information about new episodes and other updates which i post periodically so thanks once again for listening and I'll talk to you next time.